Conductor Evan Rochester and stage director Stephen Barlow are backstage at Lyric. This is the first time that Verdi introduces a symphonic style into his writing. So you'll see in the third act that numbers, you know, generally we have arias and recitatives, and even in his own style previous to Rigoletto, those were quite succinct and identifiable events. This is the recit, and it prepares the aria, or it prepares a duet coming up, or there might be a chorus. But in Rigoletto, Verdi blurs all of those lines. And, and that's, in the history of music, a, a very large advancement, not just for him. In our production, I think we try and make clear that this is an addiction which he revels in in public, but in private, he realizes that he is unhappy and that this addiction to women, and let's not forget he's married. We never meet his, his wife, we only hear about her. So um, it sets up the cynical side of his character. He's a very cynical operator, and it sets up the fact that he does kind of perform for the court. He's as much, I think, a performer in the court as the jester, Rigoletto. Welcome to another edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Rigoletto by Giuseppe Verdi. The Discovery Series consists of panel discussions with the singers, directors, conductors, and other creative talent from the Lyric Opera season. There is usually one session per opera, and they generally take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. For more information on the Discovery Series, including ticket information, visit lyricopera.org. And now we turn things over to Lyric Opera of Chicago dramaturg Roger Pines, your moderator for this Discovery Series session for Rigoletto. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very, very much for coming out on this extraordinarily cold night. Um, This is going to be very stimulating. I think we're going to come away, all of us, with a lot of new thoughts about a piece that we all think we know pretty well. Um, I'm Roger Pines, by the way, dramaturg, lyric opera of Chicago, and we are here to talk about Verdi's Rigoletto. This is the final session of our Discovery series for the year. Conductor Evan Rogester is debuting with us with Rigoletto, and he will also be on the podium at Lyric a few weeks from now for the company premiere of A Streetcar Named Desire. He has recently been at Houston Grand Opera for Bohème and at the Grand Théâtre in Luxembourg for Otello. And if you frequent Santa Fe Opera, then you heard Evan there last summer conducting Shimanovsky's Rarely Heard King Roger. He is going uh, to be back in Santa Fe this summer for a very important world premiere by the American composer Theodore Morrison called Oscar, based on the life of Oscar Wilde, in which um, Evan will be collaborating with David Daniels in the title role. Um, our director, Stephen Barlow, who is also making his Lyric Opera debut with this production, made his Santa Fe debut last summer with a new production of Tosca. Uh, immediately prior to that, he created a new Carmen for Opera Theatre of St. Louis. His current season includes La, La Rondine, Covent Garden, a Massenet Martin, new triple bill at the Guildhall School of Music and Drama in London, and Traviata at Singapore Lyric Opera. He's also directed at the Met, San Francisco, Glyndebourne, and many other major companies. So please join me in welcoming to the Discovery Series, Evan Rochester and Stephen Barlow.
do I need to do my 60-second quick synopsis of Rigoletto? Just raise your hand if you need to. Yes, a couple of you do. So here we go. The rakish Duke of Mantua seduces and abandons Count Monterone's daughter. Monterone curses the Duke, and when he's ridiculed by Rigoletto, the Duke's court jester, he curses Rigoletto as well. Rigoletto's own daughter, Gilda, is in love with the Duke, whom she knows only as a poor student. Courtiers abduct Gilda, who is herself seduced and abandoned by the Duke, leaving Rigoletto desperate for revenge. Rigoletto hires an assassin to kill the Duke, but Gilda, learning of the plan, allows herself to be killed in the Duke's place, fulfilling the father's curse on Rigoletto. Is that okay? 30 seconds. seconds. (laughs) So... When did each of you hear your first Rigoletto, and what sort of impression did it leave on you? Oh, that's a great question. I, um, I was an undergraduate at um, Indiana University studying with... I, was, I studied both trombone and voice in, in undergrad, and I was studying with the man um, who you may know, Giorgio Tozzi, who was a great bass and he had sung with Leonard Warren, and so he said, well, you, have, you just have to hear this. It's the most unbelievable um, force of nature type of voice. So that's, that's sort of where I first became acquainted with the role. Um, what about the piece as a whole? What did you listened to that classic Warren recording. And, that's right. Uh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, how did it strike you? Oh, unbelievable. I mean, he, he's no, just, Not just he, but the whole oh, piece. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, for me, this is... Maybe it might be one of the the top five great operas that there is, and and it's so compelling. Um, my mother, who had never seen the opera, went to um, the Met broadcast last week, and she said that um, she was just so overwhelmed by the emotions that are in this piece. No matter what um, is happening on stage, it's so clear the intentions of Verdi and the way that he paints the father daughter relationship in music that, um, I think everyone is just instantly taken up with it. Stephen, when, when did you hear your first Rigoletto? Well, I grew up in Australia, uh, that's where I'm from, where I was born and educated. And, uh, when I was at my last years of school, first years at university, I worked as an usher, uh, in a theatre which uh, every season or twice a year would uh, be the home for the uh, Australian opera. So I grew up seeing all the classic operas as a kind of school kid. And at this point, you expect me to say, and I saw Rigoletto. I didn't see Rigoletto there. It was one of the ones that slipped through my fingers as a student, uh, and I was studying music as well. Um, I saw just about every other classic opera you can name in two years working as an usher, uh, but not Rigoletto. My first Rigoletto I saw in, uh, at Covent Garden, which was my first job when I went to London. I got a job at Covent Garden, the opera house, working in the marketing department, and uh, that's where I caught up with Rigoletto. It was a new production by a Spanish director called Nuria Esper, who did a wonderful Carmen at uh, Covent Garden, which I think went to the Met. Um, and it was updated, uh, kind of 60s, sort of more, kind of modern. Uh, I remember the set very well, and I remembered it rained in Act 3, which I thought was really amazing. It was real rain. And I loved it. I was completely taken in by this kind of visceral drama where I didn't have to question anything that was happening on stage. I totally went with the story and the characters and the intentions. Um, and then... Uh, I've seen other productions since then, but the the first time is often the best, isn't it? 
Evan, what do you hear in this piece that shows particularly vividly how far Verdi had come from pieces like Nabucco and Hernani? I mean, this is really sort of a highlight of the whole middle period, but what makes it so? Uh, Because this is, the I I believe, the first time that Verdi... um, introduces a symphonic style into the um, into his writing. So you'll see in the third act that um, numbers, you know, generally we have arias and recitatives, and um, in, in, even in his own style previous to Rigoletto, those were quite um, uh, succinct and identifiable events. This is the recit, and it prepares the... Aria, or it prepares a duet coming up, or there might be a chorus. But um, in Rigoletto, Verdi blurs all of those lines. And, and that's, in the history of music, a, a very large advancement, not just for him. And, and then you'll see in the third act, where the storm scene happens, that those lines are blurred even further, so that there's no um, differentiation between okay, you know, we will now listen to the singer sing and we have to applaud and then something else um, will happen after that. Instead, it's a very organic process. And right. I, I think for him that this marks a huge change. Um, the audience will hear uh, at the very beginning the curse motif, very first thing in the opera. How is the curse motif used? What is... What particular dramatic purpose does it serve? Well, it... Um, it and can you give us sort of... You don't have to sing it. No, but sure, can sure. Can you give the, 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 what the rhythm is like? Yeah, it's a very insistent rhythm. And it, you will hear this very quickly in the first scene sung by Monterone, who's cursing both the Duke and Rigoletto. But it's, um, it happens on the note C... And Verdi is very consistent that throughout the entire opera, the curse is always on the pitch C. And it, it's simply a dum, ba-bum, ba-bum. And then when the curse happens, there's a minor third, which um, the minor interval can um, and is, is what creates the diminished chord. If you have mi- minor thirds stacked on top of each other, you get that sound that you would instantly recognize from the picture of the movie with the girl on the railroad track and she has to be saved and she's tied down. That's a diminished chord that's being played. (laughs) So Verdi has encapsulated that diminished chord in the minor third of the uh, curse. And you'll hear this body and diminished chord. And and, uh, without without it sounding too phony or happening... Too many times. He picked exactly the right amount of times for it to happen. This is why I love the Discovery series. (laughs) Thank you. Um, Stephen, we begin the opera with a very well-known aria, Questo Quello, which is sung by the Duke. What do we learn about him in the course of an aria, which is essentially two identical verses? Well, musically, uh, that is. It, we learn a lot. We learn that he's uh, a close cousin of Don Giovanni. He's a serial philanderer. He has a problem. Um, in fact, he has an addiction, I think, um, which is, uh, is well, it's, it's open to interpretation, but um, 
in our production, I think we try and make clear that this is an addiction which um, he revels in in public, but in private he realizes that he is unhappy and that this addiction uh, to women, and let's not forget he's married. We never meet his, his wife. We only hear about her, but he is married, but clearly unhappily married, um, that this, this addiction is not bringing him satisfaction. So um, it does, um, it, sets, it sets up the cynical side of his character. He's a very cynical operator, and it sets up uh, the fact that he does kind of perform for the court. He's as much, I think, a performer in the court as, as the jester, Rigoletto. Um, certainly that's the interpretation I'm, I'm bringing to the piece. Um, that's what I feel about the character, that he is, in a sense trapped in a disguise, in a una larva, as, as much as, uh, as Rigoletto is, that he's aching for true and honest love. He hasn't found it with his wife. He hasn't found it with any of his, these, uh, you know, quick dalliances that he has. But, of course, I think he does find it with, with Gilda. Remind us when the wife is actually referred to. I remember in Act 2, the page mentions her, right? Yes, exactly. That what is does when the page we, say? Um, she says uh, the Duchess wants to know where the Duke is. And, uh, and the court reply, he's out hunting, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, because actually he's inside the palace with Gilda. Yeah, so he's doing hunting of a different kind. So um, that's when we, we learn about her. But also in the libretto, although we don't do it in this production, um, Act 2, uh, when uh, Monteroni comes and curses the jewels, uh, the basically says that his curse on the Duke has failed. He's meant to sing it to the portrait of the Duke. And in the, the original Italian libretto, it says for this scene, um, which is meant to be inside in our production, it's outside, there are two portraits um, uh, one of the Duke and one of the Duchess. So it makes it clear that he is married, even though we don't meet her as a character. We do hear her or hear of her, and in, in the original production, um, we are meant to see a portrait of her as well. He sings the aria Questoquella at a party in his palace. So what is most important to both of you, um, Evan in the pit and Stephen on the stage, What's most important to communicate to the audience as far as the, the nature of the party, the basic ambience of the party? Well, I'll just dive in quickly. Um, uh, to me, there's always a problem when you try and stage the, the first scene of Rigoletto. And this is my first Rigoletto. I've seen various productions. But um, often directors feel like they have to stage an orgy because that's sort of what it is. But, you know, you can never really stage an orgy properly on stage <laughs> for obvious reasons. <laughs> Um, not even in Germany, where they, they go much further. Can you really do it properly? So we, what you end up is with a very kind of half-hearted, limp kind of, you know, a suggestion of an orgy. I think what I've tried to do is not go down uh, that, um, that, uh, that route at all. But in fact, I think it, what's important to answer your question is I think it's very important that we get a sense of this degenerate character, not, just the, not so much of the court, but of the Duke, that he is degenerate, that he, like Giovanni, he is you know, a libertine, he is off the rails, and uh, that's what I've tried to... Uh, I think that's what's important that we get, this kind of decadent, uh, decadent atmosphere that's not comfortable, that's slightly uncomfortable to watch, um, that we feel like this is a man kind of out of control. So, Evan, the, so much of the music is just your basic jolly 
party music. So how how can you color it so that the spirit of this party comes through? Well, I th- I, th- I have to say that what's remarkable is that um, the the party music is never repetitive. Actually, other other than you could argue, okay, Cuesta Cuela is bum 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 for quite a while. It, he is using he's using a six eight rhythm, which you also would find very familiar in Gilbert and Sullivan operas. There's something about it that's kind of insincere, maybe, in the mm. way that it just just kind of mm. goes by and he's re- reciting this speech. Um, and what I, I love the way Stephen talks about it as being a, a performance for him because he is he's not he's not really opening up right there and showing his deepest soul. Absolutely. That's something to entertain the mm. entire crowd. Mm. Um, uh, but in the in the party music that that starts the banda that plays off stage, every phrase, um, w- every four bars are different. So that the Verdi has um, cre- there's you can there are actually five different uh, sequences of music that happen, but but none of it is really repeating. It does it does repeat over the course of the scene, but you can never become um, sort of bored with any four bars because Verdi instantly changes it, and that's something that he had started per- to perfect in all of that music in the as you said the. Um, the years that came before, he he always had this incredible gift for melody, and um, I think what's interesting in Rigoletto is that in, in this party music is how much he then says, okay, well I can just change it just that much, and he I um, visited in um, in December. I sort of made a pilgrimage to Verdi's villa at which is uh, in Busetto in Italy which is in the northern region uh, about 90 minutes from Milan he had this magnificent um, farm that he built um, farm and villa very close to where he was actually born and when you go into um, the, the the villa interestingly enough is still owned by the Verdi family and so you can only visit a certain amount of rooms because they still live upstairs. Um, but you can visit his room, and there are three distinct things in the room. There's his bed um, with a very a religious portrait over, over it. There's the composition table where he always composed and apparently mainly late at night. And then there's the piano where he would assume, assumably some try, you know, try out what he composed but beside the bed is also a bookshelf, and it has very important volumes on that, uh, important to his life, and, and it shows us what he really honored. Um, there's uh, Shakespeare, all the works, complete works of Shakespeare, the complete symphonies of Haydn and Mozart. And, and I, I point out Mozart because the, um, this scene, I think, is harking back to Mozart's Don Giovanni, which was, uh, in, as you may know, in Don Giovanni, there's a scene at the end of the first act where there are three different bands playing music on stage at the same time, all playing different meters, but they all sync up. And, and I think that Verdi's use of the, the band here is, is very reminiscent of, the, of Mozart's um, party music there. We should pause for a moment, uh, Stephen, to talk about what the set and costumes look like in this scene and indeed in the rest of the opera, but what um, did our two designers, Robert Innes Hopkins and, and Jane Greenwood, bring to the look of that party scene? Well, um, 
spectacular costumes and beautiful sets. And I think Rigoletto of, of practically all of uh, Verdi's operas is the one that is probably the most easily updatable. And, and as you know, it often is uh, because of the. It's very easy to put it into a mafia setting. Uh, the recent production of the Met, which I haven't seen, uh, trans, uh, transports it to Vegas in the 60s. The very famous Jonathan Miller, the iconic Jonathan Miller production from the English National Opera in 1982, which has only just gone out of the rep, uh, uh, transposed it to New York uh, in the, uh, the 60s, I think, and very successfully, a brilliant production, much loved. Um, but I think it's kind of refreshing to do a Rigoletto that doesn't do the updating because it's now so easy it's almost kind of predictable to update it and indeed to um to transpose it to an american setting so um uh jane and and robert uh did something which uh, not a lot of designers do these days they, they kept it in the place and the time that the composer and the librettist uh originally asked for so um uh but the, having said that um it's not traditional in that it's conservative and you're just going to see a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of ordinary standard Rigoletto. For, for instance, the, the very first scene um, in our production is set in the Duke's bedchamber. Um, often it's set, you know, outside or in a, in a kind of salon. But this is made very clear that this is his private quarters. Um, and we make it very clear from the beginning that um, he invites or, or in, invites the courtiers uh, the, the court, the courtigiani, in into his private kind of inner sanctum, and that's where. And when we were all younger, we went to those parties, didn't we? They either ended up in the kitchen or in the bedroom. That's what they're always the two best bits of a party. So it was that sense of this being the kind of the nucleus of this kind of debauchery uh, in in his uh, bedchamber. So, but it's a very beautiful set. It's. Um, um, it's done, I don't want to give too much away, but it's done on a revolve, so there's lovely liquid changes and um, very impressive uh, artwork. The costumes are extraordinary. They're so, I don't think I've seen such beautifully realised uh, cost, period costumes. Um, uh, I was just up in costume wardrobe the other day just going through them and just, um, you know, my jaw dropped with amazement. I saw Jane recently in, in New York and I told her, you know, just what a fantastic job she's done. So I think... I presume you're all coming. I'm sure you will really um, marvel at the uh, the beautiful sets and the uh, and the very very impressive period costumes. So, what happens when we move in the last scene? When we move to the sort of dark and dreary inn mm. for that final scene? We'll have to come. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have an inn, and uh, we're we're in the inn. Um, I think something that I'm. Um, that is not always easy to catch in Rigoletto um, is the sense of the last scene happening by a river. And um, this is probably where I should say, and we have managed to capture that. I don't think we did. But, we, but having said that, we didn't intend to do it. We felt that it, w- it wouldn't be possible given the way that we were going with the production, but um, the way that Robert and Jane went with it. But, um, uh, but yes, it's uh, a dark... Um, a very dark, sinister uh, kind of inn on the road with a red lantern hanging outside the door because it's uh, red is the colour of danger and there's also that slight sense of kind of bordello that, that Madalena is kind of, you know, luring, luring people to their death by using her charms. 
Uh, well, that's exactly what her brother, Sparta Fucili, says uh, to Rigoletto's question, how do, you, how do you lure the victims in? And he says, oh, well, my sister, she does all that. She lures them in. So, um, yeah, the, the revolve means that we can change sets very easily in a very liquid fashion. So, um, yeah, so the, the, the settings are, although it's traditional production in time and place, the actual locations themselves are somewhat changed. Yeah. I forgot to mention that there, there is... Is there not in the very first scene, there's a giant fresco. Mm. What is the fresco now, depicting? I, I, well, it's a, a kind of a bacchanalian image of a, 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 a man wrapped around a kind of semi-naked uh, woman. And it's, it's very kind of, um, it's a sort of thing you might expect painted by Rubens although it's not Rubens, and I remember Robert told me last summer who it was, and I wish I could tell you who it was and impress you with my knowledge, but I've forgotten. But it is based on an original um, ancient painting um, of, of the time, sort of 16th century uh, painting. And it's very... Um, yeah, there's something rather decadent um, and kind of fleshy about it, so it's a very good backdrop for this, uh, this cynical, degenerate, uh, debauched uh, duke. And I believe that that domed ceiling is actually original to the palace in Mantua, that there actually is a room like that. I know that they studied the, the actual palace where it's meant to happen in, you know, in, you know, in, in Mantua, in the, in the Duke's palace. So I know they did um, study those, um, those locations. Yeah. Um, getting back to our progress through the individual scenes, um, Evan, when we get to Act 1, Scene 2, it begins with a very simple one sentence declaration from Rigoletto what is what is he saying at that the beginning of that scene and how does Verdi handle it uh he well he talks again about the old man cursed me and um he's referring to Monterone who has come in and cursed um both the duke and Rigoletto and the court for this debauchery and how it affected his own daughter and so he repeats at the start of that scene, he repeats that um, um, curse that we were talking about earlier. And, and Stephen has made a wonderful point of, pointing, of, of just um, making sure that everyone in the cast is, is very aware of the fact that particularly in this time, but, but also today in Italy, that if you are cursed, if you're given a maledizione, it's much more serious that, it, you know, if... If Roger cursed me right now, I, I, I don't, you know, I might be upset, but it's not, I'm not going to go home and, and feel like my life is ruined. But at that period, if someone were to publicly curse you, it was a, a great event in your life. And so that's why we're, we're constantly being reminded, and this is the first time that Rigoletto is acknowledging that, well, actually the curse was also on me, you know, um, and it is probably foreshadow- of obviously foreshadowing the f- the fact that he has this relationship of his own daughter, and um, he may be already a little bit worried that somehow the the curse from a man and his daughter will affect him. So. After that, we have one of the most unusual scenes musically in all of Verdi, which is the confrontation, well, the dialogue, the first meeting of Sparafucile and Rigoletto. Mm-hmm. It's so striking, but what? makes it so what is so unusual about it musically well there um for one it's um 
what we call a soli, because there are two solo instruments playing at the same time, the solo cello and the solo contrabass. And normally you do not hear um, a solo contrabass. There were a few concertos written in early Italian literature for solo contrabass, and Mahler uses it famously in the first symphony. But it's not an instrument that one hears normally playing by itself. It's usually underlying the, the harmony, playing at the bottom of the chords. So that, that dark, low sound, which I think is in, uh, capturing the spirit of Sparafucile particularly, um, is very remarkable. And then, and then he's only joined, um, Verdi asks that the violins not play at all in the scene, and then he, the, those two instruments are accompanied by a few violas and a few other cellos, and then some wind instruments and a bass drum. So there's, there's, it's extremely unusual instrumentation. And very intimate in, yes. in terms but of that's the what Because you have to remember, this is a discussion. What, dis- what they are discussing, what they are plotting, is the murder of a man. And yet the music has this almost seductive kind of quality. Yes, it's dark and, and ominous. And yet there's sort of, from Sparafucile, there's this sort of ease and calm about this sort of web that he's spinning. It's really quite chilling, but, but quite compelling at the same time. Yeah. And there's also, describe the final phrase, which is so marvelous from Sparafucile as he's leaving the stage. Well, um, this is a quite a famous moment for bass, but the Sparafucile, who is introducing himself also to Brigoletto and says, my name is Sparafucile. He, he, he's singing on Fs and... Um, he takes it down to the low F, which is an extremely low note for the bass, and then holds it. And in our case, we're extremely fortunate to have the great bass, Andrea Silvestrelli, who you may already have seen this um, season as um, Colline, um, and also as the watchman and the Meistersinger. And, this- and for, for Andrea, it is... Trust me, it's no problem to go there. Um, (laughs) What what I find interesting, just talking about that moment, I don't know if this is true, but I was actually, I was thinking about it the other day. Uh, I thought, why does, why at the end of this, that very scene, why does Rigoletto sing va, go, four times? Why doesn't he just say va? But he's very pointedly, he sings va, 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 in in rhythm. And then I realised it comes just after Sparafucili has said spa, ra, fu, so it's like I think it's like he's sort of, although he's telling him to go, he's actually adopting his rhythm and he's a, sort of adopting his kind of meter. So uh, I don't know if that's what's intended, but I, that's what I'm kind of reading in that moment, that mm-hmm. he's kind of absorbing uh, Sparafucil's poison, if you like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The next character that we meet is Gilda, our leading lady, and we spend a lot of time with her because she has her lengthy duet with Rigoletto, then her lengthy duet with the Duke, and then her aria. Mm. So in that first duet with Rigoletto, they actually sing three in the course of the opera. We learn a, a fair amount about what her life has been like. So, Stephen, what are the most important details that we should come away with from that duet about her? Well, first of all, she doesn't uh, n- know who her father is. She, she doesn't know... Uh, his name, she doesn't know anything about her family. She's been um, basically uh, kind of locked up, really, um, in a kind of almost in a, in a prison by a very overprotective father that um, 
uh, is worried that because he's deformed, because he's you know, a, a buffone, that people, if they were to find out about this beautiful girl, that they would, um, uh, they would you know, try and take her away or, or play a trick on him, which, of course, is exactly what happened. So he smothers his daughter with, with love and, um, and denies her basic knowledge and, and doesn't want her to sort of become a woman of the world. Um, she's only allowed to go out for church on holy days. Otherwise, she's not allowed to go out. She's not allowed to meet anyone. It's actually very cruel, I think, what he, um, he does to Gilda. Actually, it was only when I realized that that I, I made sense of the ending because I kind of thought, why does, the good, why does the bad guy get away with it? I.e., why does the Duke not die? And then I realise, actually, that, that Rigoletta does quite a lot of terrible things, and one of them is the way he treats his daughter. Um, so she doesn't, know, um, she doesn't know his name. She doesn't know anything. She doesn't know anything about her family, her relations. So she's desperate, as you can imagine, to know, you know, where am I from? Tell me about my life. And he refuses. And, well, then he eventually he, he melts a little bit, and he tells her about, his, his, uh, about her mother and uh, how... Um, she took pity on Rigoletto, his wife, and looked after him, but she died. Um, so obviously Gilda never knew her. Um, but yes, she lives a very, very sheltered life, and she's desperate for air. She's desperate for knowledge and love. Why do you think he withholds as much as he does from her? I mean, she literally says to him at one point, tell me your name. Yes, yes. Why do you think he would withhold something as basic as that from her? Yeah. Well, he says he says then um, there may be people who hold vendettas against yeah. me or who have something against me. So I prefer you not to to know to know anything. It might spook you. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's sort of wild that there's not a single functional family in this opera. Yeah. You know. Yeah. <laughs> you have you have that going on. You have the other family where the sister lures people in to die. And, um, but is there a functional family in any opera? I'm not sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Duke then appears at Rigoletto's house, and he is ready to woo Gilda. So w- he saw her previously in church, right? Yeah, they, uh, he's, he's seen her for a, over a period of weeks and uh, spotted her. And is sort of, indeed, the first, uh, um, the, the first line of the opera is, is him saying that, you know, he's, he's uh, kind of fixated on this on this girl that he's seen and she lives in a remote street and there's something about her that he can't get out of his mind um yes so he's been kind of spying on her following her but also Gilda has also been aware of it so she's slightly complicit because she um she's aware of this this guy that this and there there's this sort of um implicit attraction between them so uh yeah he's he's already kind of uh, sniffed her out as it were. So considering how many women he has already seduced do we sense that his attitude about her is somehow different? Absolutely and this is something that I really wanted to try and get across because um unfortunately Giuseppe uh, unfortunately not here with us tonight um I've just worked with him at the Met uh, in a different uh, in La Rondine by uh, by Puccini and I was really struck by how sincere he was as a performer as an artist and indeed as a, you know as a person in real life so when I said to him look I really feel that in this scene with Julia that he really means this stuff that he's just not making it up that because if he was making it up, A, it would make him incredibly cynical, but it also would sort of invalidate the music, which um, is very different from uh, the, you know, the arias that he sings in the outer acts. This is something very gentle 
and um, um, and the text is completely different. It's very poetic. It's not at all cynical. It's not showy. Um, it's very, very respectful of her. He's, you know, he goes very piano, piano. So I think he, um, his, he does change. There's something about Gilda that changes him and that he finds his true self, his true good self. And I like to believe that all, even evil people have a, you know, goodness within them. There's a possibility of redemption. And actually, I don't think the Duke is evil anyway. I think he's obviously very damaged, but I don't think he's an evil character. And he doesn't, certainly doesn't go around killing people, not that we see anyway. Like, like Rigoletto does, or Sparafacili. So, yeah, I think he does... There's, some, there's a real sincerity, in, I think, in the music and the text, and, and fortunately with Giuseppe, there's a real sincerity in, in the way he interprets the role. Now, there is a rather lengthy cadenza for the two of them. Now, mm. I can't remember, Evan, if we're actually doing... We are. We are. Well, what is going on in that cadenza, do you think? I mean, is Gilda... I just... It's I think very it's her, passionate. I think it's her sexual awakening. As, uh-huh. as a, um, you know, I said I was talking to Albina about this. A wonderful, wonderful Gilda, and um, uh, saying that you know she really begins the piece as a frustrated uh, teenage girl, you know, desperate for knowledge, and then really before our eyes, before her eyes, she becomes kind of sexualized in in in, uh, in, in with the Duke. You know, her music changes. And she grows up and she becomes, you know, she becomes aware of her sexuality. Um, she talk, talks about, you know, her, her virtue. She said, is this, you know, is this, the, uh, is this man the, what my virginal dreams have, you know, have been um, thinking about? So, um, yeah, I think that cadenza, the way I've staged it, it's, it's kind of the moment they actually physically come together. With, um, in the party scene, in the first scene, I have women draped all over the Duke and him draping himself all over women. But when he meets, when he first kind of speaks with Gilda, it's quite the opposite. He's very respectful. He keeps his distance. He doesn't paw her or try and maul her in any way like he has with the other women. He's, there's a real um, respect for her space and her, and her fear and her youth. And so on the cadenza, that really beautiful cadenza is really kind of where they touch each other for the first time. And it's, it's kind of tingling with sexual excitement and um, in, in a lovely way, not in a sort of any kind of pornographic way. Yeah. Mentioning the cadenza makes me want to ask Evan, um, how did you decide what cuts you were making? Because Rigoletto is often subject to quite a few. Right. Stephen and I made all the decisions together, which is very fortunate that we have a really lovely working relationship. It's not, unfortunately, not always the case. But um, we made our cut decisions based on one thing, which is does a cut help the drama? Does it help move the story forward in a spot that might feel um, a little bit static? And so we're taking really only one cut in the duet um, between Gilda and Rigoletto in the beginning when there is a moment of repetition, and we felt that it's more compelling for the story yeah, to go right on. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I felt if the singers were willing to do this cadenza, which is very difficult, um, that it does add this lovely, unspeakable feelings that are sort of awakening in both of them, and um, and Verity, you know, was very specific of, about what he wants. Now, after that cadenza, they have a rather jaunty adio section, which I think you're doing complete. That's right. Which most companies... Well, I'll tell you why. Because, because 
I think, you know, that's, that's where singers and some people get frustrated and say, okay, well, they're, they're saying adio, which is goodbye. Why do they say it 50 times? Mm. But you remember that, uh, or not remember, you, we, we all know that when two people meet and love each other, that it takes forever to say goodbye. You're like, goodbye, oh, wow, no, no I didn't really mean, you know, let's talk about something else before we say goodbye. And so, so actually, I think that's what he's capturing in the music, that uh, reluctance to actually say goodbye. Um, so it's, it's quite nice that, that they're up for, for doing it, because it, that's a very difficult section as well. And as you said, I think it's very sweet. It's like these two kids are sort of falling in love, and uh, they, can't, they can't wrench themselves apart. I have no problem with that dramatically. And also, I think in, in opera, things... Uh, uh, Peter Sellers, a great American director, called it habit energy, where people do repeat the same text over and over again, and I, I'm not frightened of that. I, th- I think you can always make sense of that as a director, why that happens. You know, it happens, obviously, a lot in Mozart as well. And, uh, yeah... Um, we do go around in circles uh, with good things and bad when something bad happens to us. I lost my wallet the other day and I, I couldn't stop thinking about it for ages. I kept replaying the scene in my head. I did this and then I did that and why did I do that? I went round and round and round, just like you do in opera. They sing round and round and round. <laughs> we, we do it in real life. I don't have a problem with it. <laughs> um, after the Duke leaves, Gilda has her big moment in the sun vocally with Caro Nome. And that aria is so often viewed purely as a coloratura display piece, but it's a great deal more than that. So, Evan, how does Verdi purely musically communicate her emotions to us at that moment? Well, musically, it's, it's really a miracle of musical invention because if you think at, at its purest, uh, in its most condensed, pure form, it's simply a scale going down. Da-da-dum, bum, bum. Bum, 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 bum. That's it, you know. And yet he gets this incredible magic out of it in the in the um, in the harmonies in in the simplicity of it. And then there is there is um, ornamentation in in sort of in the variations of the harmony. Um, I should tell you something that I that I find quite amusing which I, I recommend that you all go look at on YouTube um, this melody was used you know back when um, when I was growing I think I'm actually in the theater because of the Muppet show oh. <laughs> <laughs> I, as a kid I adored the Muppet show so much yeah. and they had the most incredible musical performers you know um, Beverly Sills was on the Muppet show Placido Domingo was on Harry Belafonte all these people and um, Renee Fleming, who we are very fortunate to have coming for the upcoming production of Streetcar Named Desire, and who's also artistic advisor to the Lyric Opera, I don't think would be embarrassed to have you know that she did her appearance on The Muppet Show with Caro Nome, and it's a, it, you know, as it's one of those in- instructional vid- videos for kids. And so she sings just a slightly different text. She says, first it's one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> Backwards, five, four, three, two, <laughs> one. But it's marvelous, you know? <laughs> and um, it, there, there's something in that melody that's so charming and catches you that way that it's both delightful for, for a child, for, for anyone. It's one of the most remarkable melodies ever. So, Stephen, now that she is alone, do we get 
um, a sense from the aria of her sort of sexual awakening continuing? I mean, what is she... How, how, do you, how do you handle that on the stage? Well, I think there's this sort of, in the music, there's this kind of really kind of girlish excitement of falling in love for the first time. It is, I actually think Rigoletto is, is the other great um, Verdi Shakespearean opera. Because <laughs> I really think Shakespeare, um, uh, it, it would have made, uh, you know, a great Shakespearean play. And I think his, his approach is very Shakespearean. And this, uh, this character uh, in this scene really does feel like Juliet, you know, where she um, repeats uh, his name, Romeo, 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 where for out thou, Romeo. And she is singing about, as it turns out, a fake name, Gualtier Malde. That's what she thinks the Duke is called. That's what he invents a persona for himself, a kind of a, a, a fantasy figure of a poor student. And what, what young prince wouldn't wish to be a poor student and have no and not have to bother with the duties of court. I know two young men in Britain who feel very strongly about that. Um, they would love to be poor students as well. Um, so he invents this character, this name, and she keeps repeating the name. And I think it's very Juliet-like, this falling in love and falling in love with the sound of his name. She repeats it three or four times and she tastes it on her lips and it's so beautiful she can't. So it's, it's a truly honest portrait. And it happens in, in you know, young, young girls' bedrooms every day. You know, they fall in love for the first time and they fall in love with the concept of falling in love and it's like her prison cell and our set has a suggestion of a prison cell it's like the doors to her prison cell of you know, solitary confinement uh, have finally opened and the sun comes in it's a beautiful beautiful sensitive sensual moment yeah. we haven't said much about the chorus up to now they're very important in the first three scenes of the opera so there is following Karanomi there's this marvelous Chorus, um, the ZTTT chorus. What, Stephen? What dramatic function does that chorus serve? Well, it's it's in some ways it's it's the absolute nub of the opera because it's where Gilda uh, gets abducted by the court, who mistakenly believe that she is uh, Rigoletto's amante, lover, and that they're going to uh, abduct his lover to play a cruel trick on him. Well, in, indeed, they do play an even crueler trick when they realise that, in fact, they've abducted his daughter. So during that chorus, which for me has a... I don't know if this is right, Evan, but it has a kind of sort of Donizetti mm-hmm. kind of lightness to it, something you might have heard in, in or hear in Pasquale. It's, it's kind of got this really... Um, almost juvenile delight in that, um, but, but slightly nasty uh, delight in them abducting. That's basically saying, quite, quite, don't make a noise. And uh, he teased us, we'll wait till he sees, we can't wait to see the look on his face when uh, he sees what we have done to him. So it's actually quite sort of bitter and nasty, and yet it has a kind of slight sort of jollity to it. It's very, very clever. And, and while they're singing this chorus, be quiet, be quiet, um, let's not make a noise, actually the... Uh, they're abducting uh, Gilda from uh, the, his house. And, of course, the cruel, the, the wonderful cruelty about it is that Rigoletto thinks that they're abducting uh, uh, the Count Ciprano's uh, wife. So he thinks he's holding the ladder for uh, someone else's cruel trick. But, in fact, he's uh, the architect of his own demise, which, of course, is the point of, uh, of the story there. How does one make that convincing at the end? How, how can it be dark enough so that he wouldn't know that he was being blindfolded and the blind, that the blindfold would cover his ears so completely that he wouldn't hear his daughter's cries for help? Well, here's the thing. I know a lot of people have a problem with that. I have a problem with another bit of the opera where I, I, I find uh, kind of hard to go with. 
I'll maybe tell you what that is in a moment. I've never had a problem with that point. I kind of think, well, yeah, he's blind. It's meant to be very dark, obviously, and on stage you can't have it pitch black because everyone will say it. We can't see the singers, and you've got to see the singers. So you, I think by this point in the opera, I think you've, you've chosen to suspend disbelief, or you haven't, and in which case you're going to hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you've probably already left. So, but I think if you're still with us, and then... <laughs> Then you'll go with that. I think it's a tiny detail, but he's, he is blindfolded, so we understand that he certainly can't see anything, uh, and he says it's very dark, and that the blindfold does go over his ears. But here's the thing. When, even if he does hear what they're singing, he thinks they're talking about the, Count, the Countess Soprano being abducted. They never mention his name. Um, so they, he probably, if he does hear anything, and I said you will hear at one point a chair being knocked over, and you'll hear another point, a, a muffled of a woman with a, a gag in her mouth. And I said, you assume that is Countess Soprano. So you laugh along with that and think, oh, good, they've got her now. So I, I don't think dramatically I have a problem. The problem I have very quickly is at the end, I'm, the first time I saw Rigoletto at Covent Garden, I was so caught up with it. And then, you know, she's in the sack, he opens the sack and there's Gilda. And I think, oh, how sad, the poor girl, she's dead. Oh, no, she's alive. She's going to sing a little bit. <laughs> she's going to sing for ten minutes. Okay. <laughs> that was the bit where I thought, mm, okay, um, yeah, all right. So, um, but, yeah, it's opera sometimes. You know, you yeah. can't always apply logic to opera because it's not, a, you know, people don't sing, you know, stories in real life anyway. So it's heightened emotion, heightened stories, and you have to, and also it comes at the very end. So once again, if you've come that far, suspending your disbelief, I think you're prepared to take a little leap further. Yeah. Um, to me, the great surprise moment is actually the opening of Act Two, because that gives the Duke his big recitative and cavatina, where he is alone and he, it's very soulful, mm. and to the point where it could confuse the viewer about his character. So, Evan, what is that whole scene for him like musically? Uh, well. First of all, there's this wonderful, very small introduction, which is written pianissimo, but in, in which one gets the feeling of, of either the Duke having gone back to, to, to see Gilda again and realizing that, you know, that she's been taken or, or some, some type of travel there. There's all, to me, I, I, you almost hear a little bit of the, like the horse travel, traveling in there. Um, then he, um, as Stephen is pointing, has pointed out earlier, this is where he really shows his true human side and his his concern for her and his uh, his anger that that she has been stolen from him. Um, and so he has also, Roger, you were talking about earlier the development of Verdi. There's a, a lot of information comes in this recitative that happens right before the aria proper, in which he. Um, Expresses very violently his anger. In the orchestra, so there's a, there's a lot of anger, and then there's the um, expression of the, the true love for her, and, um, and so, guilt and, and, that he wasn't there. To, exactly. for, you know, he wasn't there for her yeah. in her hour of need. Why, yeah. oh, why wasn't I there? And that all happens in two minutes of music. So mm. it's, it's it's quite a remarkable range of emotions. So we get some substance from him, and then of course. We, it disappears, seemingly so. But but uh, but then 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 he has then then the the chorus comes back in. And he has to put his public persona on again. Mm. Um, 
So I actually think um, Stephen has stated quite lovely, but his small reactions in um, to to the the chorus when they're telling how joy, you know, how proud they are of having um, um, abducted her. Um, he, his little interjections are actually not very comfortable. You know, he's realizing what's happened, but he's he has to play on one hand the Duke. Oh, that's really nice that you're telling me this funny story, but he's he's quite uncomfortable so, with it. He, so, like like Rigoletto, he is trapped in a, in a in a part that he doesn't want to play. I think. Yeah. Uh, we then move into one of the greatest scenes ever written for baritone, and uh, it consists of. The, the, uh, Rigoletto's confrontation with the courtiers, which culminates in his big aria, Cortigiani, and then moves into his big duet, his second big duet with Gilda. So what is it about, I want to ask both of you, what is it about this scene that it sort of confirms that this is one of the most powerful characters in opera? Uh, well, I, I think that, once again, this is, feels very Shakespearean. This, this could be a, a soliloquy from a, a Shakespearean play. Um, he first of all, he's trying to find his his daughter without sort of al- allowing himself to be humiliated in front of the court. He knows that the, the court the, the uh, uh, have stolen her, or at least he you know he pretty much suspects that when he sees them and sees their faces and the and the way that they're treating him. So, but he doesn't he doesn't want to satisfy them by being kind of angry or. Um, so he sort of, in a subtle way, sort of tries to find where she might be. That doesn't work. He can't find her. Um, and then eventually they, uh, they come clean and say, well, you know, uh, are you laughing now that we've abducted your, your, uh, your lover? And, and so he's forced to, he said, actually, you haven't abducted my lover. You've taken my daughter. And then he, he launches into this tirade of, of, of abuse, initially abuse. He, you know, he calls them veal... Um, Razza Danati, you know, your cowardly race of, you know, of, of um, damned, you know, men. He damns them just in the same way that he was kind of cursed. Um, but that doesn't produce a result. So he tries a number of tactics, like a, a father desperate to find his daughter would. He appeals, you know, he tries the sort of, like he, he plays the father card. You know, he says, look, I'm a father. Then he, then he apologized. He said, look, guys, you know, I'm obviously paraphrasing in English. You know, I'm sorry, the, the tricks I played on you, you know, um, I'm really sorry, but, you know, can we, let, can we kind of call it quits now and, you know, give me back my daughter? That doesn't work. And eventually he humbles himself. He l- kind of lies in the mud, if you like. And, and, and kneels down, lies down on the floor and begs them for mercy. So in the course of five minutes, he, he travels this incredible, dramatic, emotional arc, which is completely Shakespearean and, and, very, and, and with our wonderful Rigoletto is incredibly, incredibly moving. In lesser, I've seen productions where this scene can be a bit hammy, a bit melodramatic. Yeah. With our wonderful Rigoletto, it's it's very painful, very real. He's a father with 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 uh, a number of daughters, so it's something that he really connects to emotionally. We have in Act Four, Act Three, excuse me, um, two of the best known pieces in all of Verdi: first La Donna Immobile, the tenor's aria, and then the quartet. So, Evan, how does one bring freshness to these pieces that we could all sort of sing in our sleep? That's a great question. Um, I think that, uh, for one, there there are there are markings that Verdi has made in the in La Donna Mobile and in the quartet that require extreme discipline both from the singer and from the orchestra, and that 
are where traditions sort of come in in terms of people having different ways of doing things or traditional ornaments. Um, but Verdi um, places extreme demands, particularly in the quartet, on the these four people who it's it's it probably at the time that it was written was the most remarkable ensemble that had ever been written in that here are four characters um, that are singing together you know at the same time but each one of them is expressing a very clear emotion a very clear character trait and those all are interlocking in, in counterpoint um, and that's it's it's miraculous the way he does it but he he also um, places extreme demands on the dynamics of when the singer is in a very high note in his voice um, or his or her voice that he has to make a very drastic diminuendo which is very difficult to do the, the orchestra after they've made a crescendo that they have to turn on a dime and play extremely softly um, so these are the type of things where, where actually you know as a conductor you don't um, you could come in and say, "Well, I need to force my interpretation. I'm going. I'm going to do it differently." But actually, simply to realize the exact demands that Verdi has asked of us is is the biggest challenge of all. Um, and I, I was telling the orchestra the other day, actually, um, after apologizing to have to ask for the upteenth time for an extremely intimate dynamic that. Um, this was a very difficult man. Verdi was not an easy guy. And um, when you visit his villa, you'll see that um, he, it wasn't just music that he was that specific about in, in making his demands. He, he outlined this entire property for himself and imported over 200, 300 species of plants from around the world. He was also very much into botany and laid out exactly, planned exactly where each tree and, and the, um, the bush that would go next to the tree and how it would fit in with the lake. And then it had to be uh, essentially frozen like that for eternity. He said, you know, after I die, this has to stay exactly like that. So it, it, it was, it's not that he's just writing a piano there. He really means it. And, um, and so I think that's how we found our own approach, I think. So what about in staging of something like the quartet? I mean... I think it's, it's difficult, I think, to, for a director to stage the quartet because you have to find that sweet spot and every director will have a, a, a different idea where that sweet spot is between... Um, between on the one hand just sort of park and bark where basically everything just stops and everyone just sings where they are for kind of five minutes and actually that is not satisfying because uh, as Evan said there is new information that we find out in this magnificent quartet the story does evolve but more importantly the characters we learn more about the characters um, uh, in this quartet so I think there has to be a feeling of as the music and the characters evolving so you know the story should be evolving so that does suggest movement but on the other hand if you stage it completely naturalistically then it's going to be a mass of movement which is going to tread on this beautiful moment and I think one of the points of this quartet is a chance for everyone in the audience as well just to sort of take a breath before we hurtle into the final straight of, of the of the tragedy 
um, sort of it, it sort of in some ways has a, the effect of, 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 of the concertati finale, which is a very different thing. But nonetheless, at the end of Act Three of Otello or Traviata, there's this moment where the action stops, and uh, and every, and then we hurtle into the the, the final act. Um, so for me, it has a similar but more intimate function. Uh, uh, as those, as those ensembles do. So yes, there has to be a bit of staging, but it can't. You have to let the music breathe because it is a moment where I think, um, and it does go around sort of a second time. And I think particularly the second time, you have to have this sense of it is almost suspended time. And you get that in opera. I often say to the singers, this, this, although this takes three minutes to sing, actually it's a nanosecond in stage in in story time. What's happening? So it's sort of like we go into into their minds. It becomes like a thought bubble. But it doesn't start out like a thought bubble. It starts out naturalistically, and then I think it evolves into something very, uh, very, very internal. So that's what I've tried to do with the staging. We have run out of time. I want to thank both of you very much. This was brilliant. I think we were, we've all will come away with uh, all sorts of new ideas about this piece, which we th- always thought that we knew so well. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this edition of Backstage at Lyric. For more interactive content and to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org.